0: Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Hey, good morning, Wildwood. Welcome to your summer. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Glad that we have a chance to gather today and to open God's Word together. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, again, as we have been for a lot of our summer, continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, last Sunday, we took a break from this series as our student pastor, Jonathan Holmes, uh, preached on our Student Sunday. And I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking what I was thinking. You're a little disappointed that I'm up here and Jonathan's not back uh, because we all were blessed as he guided us into God's Word last week. Um, But today, as we gather, we're going to be continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, this great message that Jesus preached um, very early in His public ministry. And inside the the Sermon on the Mount, we have seen Jesus begin a call to a blessed life. He lets us know that there is a blessed and a happy life, and He lets us know what that life looks like. And then He continues on and challenges us to take our faith and to make it public, And then after challenging us to take our faith and make it public, Jesus also continues by talking about this temptation that we have as people who live inside this world to take God's commands and to relax them or to lessen them. As a matter of fact, we saw in verse 19 of chapter 5, Jesus said, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. There's this temptation that we have to relax the standards of God. But Jesus doesn't want us to do that. As a matter of fact, he calls us to embrace. God's standards, and to understand that they are higher even than the standards of the most religious people in His day, the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 20 tells us that. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We're not to relax God's standards. We're to realize that it's a very high bar. As a matter of fact, the bar is so high, it is set by God Himself and His holiness Verse 48 of chapter 5 reminded us of that when Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so in this section of the Sermon on the Mount that we've been in the last month or so, what Jesus does is he takes God's law, he takes God's commands that have been tarnished over time by religion and by the sinfulness of this world. Like a piece of silver exposed to the elements God's law had become clouded and covered in green. And Jesus takes God's law and he polishes it in the Sermon on the Mount in this section so that we can see it once again in its brilliance and in its beauty. We saw a couple of weeks ago what that looks like in regards to dealing with our anger or with our thought life or with our truthfulness in the way that we communicate. Today we're going to see Jesus continue by applying this in the areas of marriage and relating to those who insult us and relating to those who would even be considered our enemies. Now, as Jesus does this and as he teaches, there is a good amount of conviction that comes upon us in this message, isn't there? As you read the Sermon on the Mount, we're convicted. And we can respond in a few different ways. John Stott gives us a grid by which to think of the Sermon on the Mount when he says this, says, only a belief in the necessity and the possibility of a new birth can keep us from reading the Sermon on the Mount with either foolish optimism or hopeless despair. In other words, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we can either try to relax its standard down to something we can achieve, or we can feel like there is no hope for us ever achieving it, or we can trust in a third way, a new way that God provides a way that He guides us towards and gives to us in Christ, in a new birth and in a new life. And so as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be trusting Jesus to fill our sail and to point us in the direction of God's holiness and in the direction of His truth. Today we're going to look at three different sections of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 31 and 32. Then we're going to look at verses 38 through 42, and lastly, 43 through 48, as we see God's standard polished for us in the relationships with our spouse, those who insult us, and our enemies. Jesus preaches and says this, "'It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce.' But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. On down in verse 38, "'You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also.' and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, friends, in these verses today, we're going to see Jesus give some direction, polish God's standards in three spheres, three relationships. The first relationship that we see mentioned here is the relationship with one's spouse. And we see Jesus talk about this beginning in verse 31. Now, when we see Jesus begin to talk about this, He is going to be talking about a very sensitive issue for us. He's going to be talking about the issue of divorce. Now, I know as I stand and talk about this, and I know as I read this, and Jesus knew as he preached it, that this is an issue that is, has, a great, has had a great effect on his audience. Jesus knew that in the first century, and I know it today. As a matter of fact, I would say that none of us in this room have not been impacted by divorce in some way, either in your relationship with your spouse, and your parents' relationship, in a friend's life, in your kid's life, we think about the issue of divorce, we're not talking about something that happens to someone not named us, but it's an issue that has impacted all of our lives, certainly has impacted the society around us. And we need to acknowledge that this topic is a painful and an emotional topic, I want you to know that when we look at what Jesus has to say here in just a moment, that neither Jesus nor I have any interest in just trying to make an open wound more painful. As a matter of fact, I think Jesus steps towards this issue offering grace and hope and life, and hopefully we see that as we look at it today, because Jesus knows the, the author of compassion, the father of life, he knows the pain that divorce causes. Just to maybe remind us and maybe put an example out there that we could resonate with about the pain of divorce. I, I want to just read the lyrics of a song, a song that was sung by Fontine in Les, Les Miserables. Fontine was a woman whose husband had left her early in her life and, and put her in peril and had caused great damage. And she sings a song called, I Dreamed a Dream." really talks about the pain that is left behind when a marriage ends. This was the song that she sings. She says, there was a time when men were kind, when their voices were soft and their words inviting. There was a time when love was blind and the world was a song and the song was exciting. There was a time Then it all went wrong. I dreamed a dream in times gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. Then I was young and unafraid, and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted. But the tigers come at night with their voices soft as thunder. They tear your hope apart as they turn your dream to shame. He slept a summer by my side. He filled my days with endless wonder. He took my childhood in his stride, but he was gone when autumn came. And still I dream he'll come to me, that we will live the years together. But there are dreams that cannot be, and there are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be, so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed, now life has killed the dream I dream. Now, some of you, as I read that, were hoping I would sing it. I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> but I do think the words of that song, they resonate with us, right? Whether that is in your life and your experience, or whether that is in the life and the experience of someone you love and care deeply about. Divorce is an emotional topic, and Jesus steps into it in a compassionate but a careful and a clear Way. He does so in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 31. Now, remember, in the context of this, what was happening? The context of this, Jesus was taking God's perfect standards that had been tarnished by the world and by religion, and he was cleaning them up so that we would understand God's true best, so that we would understand his true glory. He's done that in a number of areas. Now, he's going to do it with the area of divorce. Because in the first century, divorce was an issue that they were dealing with. You know, sometimes we have this idea, this, this contemporary bias, right? We think, you know, our culture is the one that has got it wrong. Everybody else got it right. I mean, the olden days, those people really, they had it all together. But but the new days were the people that have screwed it all up. We think about that in terms of marriage. We think, you know what, in, in Jesus' day, everybody stayed married. Divorce was a very marginal practice. but. Today, divorce is very common. See, if we think that way, we think wrong. In the first century, when Jesus lived, divorce was actually quite common. It was even common for those inside the church, inside the most religious places. It was common among the Pharisees who had searched the Old Testament law and had found what they believed to be the eject button on marriage, and they used it for any reason that they wanted. Jesus quotes this command in verse 31 when he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus references this issue of divorce. And then he goes on and says in verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see, They had taken this principle from God's word and it had become tarnished and Jesus polishes it and clarifies it so they can understand what God's original intent was behind it. In a sense, they were saying as they came to Jesus, we are pro-divorce, are you? And Jesus says, I'm not pro-divorce, I'm pro-marriage. And so he takes this command from the Old Testament and he polishes it for them. Now the command from the Old Testament was actually found in in Deuteronomy chapter 24 in verse 1, This statement inside of God's law. It says, When a man takes a wife and he marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and he sends her out of his house and on and on and on. There is this admission inside of the law that allowed for divorce. As a matter of fact, it gave some instruction about how it was supposed to happen if divorce were to take place, that a certificate would be written that would free the wife from her marriage relationship. Now, this was, in fact, a gracious step that God took. It was not something that God intended about marriage from the beginning. We'll see that in a moment as Jesus clarifies it for us. But as is common in every culture, women were being sent out of their homes, and in a patriarchal culture, they didn't have an ability to provide for themselves apart from their husband. And so, if their husband sent them out, they found themselves at peril and at risk of not even surviving, certainly not thriving. And so, because of that, the compassionate God makes a provision inside of the law that says that if a woman is turned away, she must be given a certificate that lets people know that she is released from her marriage vow so that she might be free. It was a gracious provision, not a commandment, not something that that should happen, not something that was God's best, but it was a gracious provision for a woman who had been abandoned by her husband. Now, Inside of Deuteronomy 24, there is this mention of the the condition that would lead to a husband dismissing his wife, and that's the condition of indecency. Now again, that word and that idea had become clouded in the first century because Pharisees had taken that idea and they had taken it to mean whatever they wanted it to mean. What, What did it mean to have an indecency with your husband, it can mean anything. It can mean that your husband didn't cook the meal the way that he wanted so he could send you away. It can mean that you no longer looked the way your husband wanted you to look so he could send you away. The Pharisees, the religious people, had come up with ways to take God's standard, which was an admission and a provision for a woman that had been abandoned and suddenly made it normal practice inside of religion. The Pharisees, at least one sect of the Pharisees, wanted to say that God was somehow pro-divorce. But Jesus steps forward and says, no, 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 you got it wrong. I'm not pro-divorce. I'm pro-marriage. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus generally and roughly mentions and clarifies his position in two verses, verses 31 and 32. But we can understand more of what Jesus meant in those two verses by looking at his longer teaching on marriage in Matthew chapter 19 in response to a question from the Pharisees. Matthew 19 verse 3, it says, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Hear what they were asking? Hey, are you pro-divorce? I mean, we can divorce our wives for any reason, right? Now, there were certainly some who wanted to restrict divorce in some way, but they wanted to put Jesus in one of the the camps of teaching in that day. They wanted Jesus to say he was for divorce in some way, shape, or form. But how does Jesus respond? He doesn't respond by saying he's pro-divorce. He he says to them, have you not read, verse 4, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, Jesus says, I am not pro-divorce, I'm pro-marriage. Marriage is durable. It's made to last. It's a picture of the commitment that God has to his people, a commitment that doesn't end. It's not just a legal arrangement that can be separated with a piece of paper. It's two becoming one. That's what Jesus says. He clarifies. He polishes it. So they said to him, well, wait a minute. What about this Deuteronomy 24 thing? They said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus clarifies and he says, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, you were sending women away with no provision for their future. The grace of God steps into this world and provides grace for those women and says, you're going to give them a certificate that allows them to live their life and be provided for. But that was never the intention intention was not for people to get married so that they could be divorced. The intention was that they could be married and stay married. Jesus says, verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, this is very consistent with what we saw in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, this issue of the exception clause. What was Jesus doing as he said that? Remember back in Deuteronomy 24, the issue of indecency? Pharisees of the first century had come to say that that could mean whatever we wanted it to mean. But Jesus polishes it and says, no, it's actually a very specific definition. He describes it here as sexual immorality. The word in the Greek language is the word pornea. It means any kind of aberrant sexual practice outside of a relationship between a husband and a wife. It would include things like extramarital affairs, but it would also include other things that would violate the marriage covenant, including pornography, homosexual activity, etc. But Jesus' teaching on this doesn't seem to say that if those things have happened, then divorce is required or commanded. He just says if divorce happens, and this is the one area where it might happen, if it happens, then there ought to be a formality to it that would lead to future life as opposed to just ongoing neglect. Jesus comes out and says he is pro-marriage. Now, when he says this, how did his initial audience hear it? Did it sound challenging to them? Yeah, I think it sounded pretty challenging to them. How do we know that? How do his disciples respond in verse 10 of chapter 19? The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now, friends, that's a pretty intense set of teaching, isn't it? They were thinking, this is beyond us, if, if this is the case. I mean, that's a, their, their worldview in the first century was, had become so casual about marriage and divorce was so possible that they were failing to consider the implications before they began. Jesus clarifies and says, no, no, no my intention is pro-marriage, not pro-divorce. It's allowed in certain situations because of my grace towards the one who has been sinned against, but it's never my best. The tigers may come at night. The tigers may tear our dreams away. God weeps as we weep in the midst of those trials. Jesus clarifies this teaching on divorce. Now, when we take all of that together, what Are some of the principles that we might see related to Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce inside of the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things that we see is that marriage is given by God and its intention is to be durable. Its intention is that it would last. One of the things that we see. A second thing that we see is that there is no mandatory eject button on a marriage. It's not as though if something has been done that meets the level of indecency, that meets the level of pornea, that the marriage must be over. In part, we we see this by the teaching of Christ, but also let's think about it in terms of the larger picture of Scripture. We have an example in the Old Testament of Hosea with Gomer, where there is a relationship of unfaithfulness, and yet the picture is leaning back into the spouse who has offended and not dismissing them or divorcing them. We see this in terms of God's relationship with us. As we sin against Him, does He run away from us or does He stick to us? He sticks to us. That's a, the picture that God has in our relationship for our marriages. So even though there may be this, this, this issue has, has, may have happened with indecency or porneia, it doesn't mean that there's a mandatory eject button on the marriage. A third thing, though, that we see, Jesus indicates that Divorce follows sin. Divorce follows sin. In our culture, we have this idea, this thing that's shared as a no-fault divorce. Jesus clarifies and says, no, divorce is always a result of sinfulness. God's best is, is not that. And you know what? If, if you have gone through the pain of this, you know that. You know that there were mistakes, there was sin, it, it, fallen short of, of God's desire in this area and it's resulted in pain for you. So how do we apply this idea? How do we apply the things that we've seen in this passage? Well, I want to make several applications to different people who are in the room. The first is to those who are not married. If you're not married, then I think that part of the application of this is to consider the significance of marriage before marrying. You know, sometimes in our culture, it's like, I got married because I was 23, or I was 22, or all my friends were doing it, or I, I just wanted to get married, or I was lonely. And, and the subtle thought behind some of those things is, you know what, I'll be married as long as it's convenient, as long as it feels good, but as soon as it goes south and I'm out, Jesus would challenge us and say, marriage is not disposable, it's, it's durable. Consider the significance of marriage before you get married. How about if you're married? If you're married, stay married. Lean back into your marriage vows and your relationship. Now, as I say that, I know there are challenges in this room. This statement, by the way, in no way, in no way is to justify abuse that is happening in your home. It's not to say, hey, you know what? Abuse is okay. Grin and bear it. It's not to say that. But it's to say in the context of your relationship, don't turn your heart away from your spouse. Turn your heart back to your spouse and find God in the midst of that. God's best is for marriage to last. If you're married, lean into your marriage. Another thing that we might see, another category of person is the one who is divorced. If you're divorced, one of the things I would challenge you to do is, is to repent of any sin in your life that contributed to the marriage. This is not to say that the divorce was all your fault. I'm not saying that. I don't know the particulars of all of your story. I'm I'm just just saying, search your heart. How did you contribute to that? Repent, confess that sin. You know what? If it's possible to reconciliation to occur, there's not been a remarriage. there's, There's not other extenuating circumstances that God might lead you back to your spouse. That would be amazing. But repent of any sin that contributed to the divorce. But for all of us in this area, I want to remind us that there's hope. There's hope. Jesus talks here about divorce in the midst of a number of other areas. You know, when we talked about anger that would lead us to be called a murderer, falling short of God's standard, you know what we, we also reminded ourselves at that point? There's grace, there's hope, and there's forgiveness we talked about our thought life leading us to maybe be called an adulterer before God, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, we were reminded that there was grace and there was hope and there was forgiveness in Christ. We talk about being loose with our words and not truthful in what we say. We talked about there being forgiveness in Christ for that. We're going to talk in just a moment about not loving our enemies as we should. There is hope and there is grace for us in the midst of that. There is also hope and grace for those of us who have experienced these problems inside of marriage. If you're here today in the sting and the pain of divorce, whether it's old or whether it's new, whether I've picked off a scab today or whatever it is, know that there is grace for you today and there is forgiveness in Christ. The standard of God has not been relaxed, but praise God, there is grace and there is forgiveness and there is hope for you. This is there's hope for me as all of us fall short of God's glory in one way or another. So the first thing we see is in the relationship with our spouse. The second thing that we see has to do with our relationship with those who insult us. Relationship with those who insult us. Now, we see this in verses 38 through 42. And I think it's, it's really interesting as Jesus continues to, to speak here, he now quotes another Old Testament principle. He quotes this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this was part of God's law that was given for a couple of reasons it was given as a civil law that would discourage sin. In other words, within a society like Israel that had God as their theocratic king who ruled over the nation, God determined the laws. And God saw fit that in that culture that their law would have some consequences that would deter sin. And one of those things was this idea of you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, if I steal your cup of water, you can, there, there can be a, a cup of water consequence in return. But you know what? If, if you kill someone, then you're also, there'll be the consequence of giving up your life as well. That was something that was common within God, inside of God's civil law as a deterrent to sin. But it also was something that was given really as a gracious provision to limit our retribution, in other words, I can't, you can't take my cup of water, Mike. I'm just, we're just, we're, we're talking here. see you can't take my cup of water and I can't come over and burn your house down for taking my cup of water. And in God's provision in his law, retribution and retaliation were limited. They were limited. And so in this way, God put these things inside of his law and in a number of places in the Old Testament law, this idea of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth was given. But what had happened in the first century was that the Pharisees had taken that and made it a personal practice, not a civil thing that government would do and that the society would do, but it was something, hey, if you insult me, I'm going to insult you back and feel pretty good about it. And so Jesus speaks to that and he says, stop feeling the need to defend yourself. Stop returning insult for insult. He uses things like if you get slapped turn the other cheek. Now, what is that all about? What's he talking about there? He's he's talking about a slap, not a punch. A punch was intended to hurt, but a slap was intended to insult. This is an honor culture. And the idea was, you know, if somebody slaps you, if somebody publicly insults you, you're not free to in turn insult them back in return. That's what Jesus says. There's this, this issue of going the extra mile, right? He talks about if somebody asks you to go one mile, go two. In the first century, the, the Roman army um, had a practice where they could legally demand any, any person inside of their little world to pick up their equipment and carry it one Roman mile. And you know what? Carrying that was not fun, and it was considered somewhat of an insult. The Jews didn't like it. They didn't want to carry those stinking Romans' equipment. But Jesus says rather than taking a personal offense when somebody treats you that way, go a little above and beyond. If somebody has a legitimate concern with you, if you've hurt them and injured them in some way, and they take you to court, don't just give them what you have to give them in repayment, but give them a little more and let them know the extent of your heart sorrow over the mistake. That's what he says. That's what Jesus says. He says, stop being insulted by these little things and in general, in general practice, he's not talking here about governments not having the ability to arrest people or or that, that war is wrong and pacifism is right. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about taking up this standard on a personal level and not carrying vendettas against others. Friends, is that hard to do? Oh my word. When was the last time you were insulted? It's been a while. Let me insult you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, how do you want to respond? I, I, I've got a good one to come back at you. That's what happens in my life. And yet God has called us to a higher standard. He's called us to something deeper. He, he goes so far as to not just talk about this with those who insult us, but he talks about this in terms of our relationship with our enemies. Verses 43 through 47. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. Now, I think that this is a really interesting example in in all of the Sermon on the Mount, all of the, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, this is a clear one where there is something amiss in what was being taught clearly just by how it was written. Because God never said, you will love your neighbor and hate your enemy. God never said that. God said, love your neighbor but they had taken that and added on this little phrase. Uh, Spurgeon says, calls it this way. I love it. He says, this is like a parasite. It's a parasite attached to the living word of God that we've added onto it. And that's what we want to do, right? What we want to do is we want to say, you know what? I want to love the lovable and I want to hate everyone else. I want to love those that I like. I want to love those who bless me. I want to be kind to those and care for those and pray for those who make me feel good. But if they don't make me feel good, then I want to harbor some bitterness and anger. I want to disregard them. I want to seek their detriment and not their well-being. And Jesus says, stop it. You're missing the standard of God. The standard of God. Praise for our enemies. I mean, even the most distant from God people in the world love those who love them. That's what Jesus says. Our standard is higher. It's deeper than that. It's how do we relate with those who have harmed us? Do we pray for them? It's Jesus' challenged us. I want to read another quote from Stott. Helps us think about this. Jesus is not just teaching this. He's going to model it for us. He says here, it says, Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors, actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying, kept repeating his entreaty, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? Friends, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus polishes God's truth. He polishes it up for us so that we can see it in its original brilliance. And when we see it, friends, it can drive us to dismay or it can have us want to change it. It can have us want to either, as, as Stott said earlier, retreat to foolish optimism or into hopeless despair. But there is another way, and that way is the way of new birth understand that Christ died for our flaws and our failures to make it possible for imperfect people to connect to a holy God and that through the work of His Spirit, He can empower us to love our enemies, to respond with blessing when insulted, and to have a picture of marriage that is one of Christ in the church. We pray for us. Father, thank You. Thank You for the depth of Your Word and the, the truth of it. Thank you that Jesus steps into real issues. He doesn't just talk about things that we can't connect to. Father, every one of us in this room connect to the issue of divorce. Every one of us in this room connect to the the issue of dealing with insults or with those who oppose us. And Father, you have called us to a higher standard. You've called us to something deeper. You've called us to obey this from the inside out. And Father, we are insufficient to that task. In our own strength, and our own power, we will fail, fail, fail. But you have provided a way in Christ for our forgiveness and our empowerment. And Father, as Jesus preached this message, he called our hearts back to you. And I pray, Father, that as your word is read and taught, that you would turn our hearts back to you, that we would see our need for Christ and we would trust him for our forgiveness and for our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name.